This is Dr. Guy. And this is Dr. John. Two brothers from other mothers. Welcome to Diseases, Death, and Doctors. If it is your first time to the pod, we'd like to welcome you. This is a storytelling podcast that discusses the non-chronological history of medicine, because it's easier that way. And who doesn't want their doctors to cut corners? hey So, first of all, I'd like to say go Braves. The, uh, the bandwagon's very crowded, and <laughs> Dr. Guy is just piled on top there. I was an Astros fan last week, but... <laughs> <laughs> Um, so today, boys and girls, we're going to discuss anthrax, the white powder that even Jim Belushi, Tim Allen, and Steven Tyler want nothing to do with. Do hey you get it, Dr. John? Uh, yes. It's because each of them really liked cocaine. Oh, that white powder. Um, wasn't that what uh, Halstead was on when he started the uh, residency programs at Hopkins? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> So it's a small stain in his storied career, but uh. <laughs> but like the entire residency idea is based Osler. off of Osler. all of the. Well, well, we'll talk about that, but I think Halstead was the one that really pushed the residency program. In addition to what Osler already started, you'd know better than me. But I just love that it's built off of at least one of the founding fathers of the modern residency being on cocaine. It's like. That's what they needed to do those work hours. It was different times back then. It was probably just the right sprinkle of charisma, excitement, and energy that was <laughs> that was needed to really push the envelope. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, I mean, it, it takes a little bit of rocket fuel to change the world. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so uh, <laughs> very random. I'm going to digress a bit. Um, but, uh, whenever I think of anthrax, I always think of my first year of college and my organic chemistry class. There is this guy in my little lab partner, I guess I should say. And he was always trying to get me to watch or go see his brother's band. And their name were, <laughs> they were called the whores of anthrax. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. <laughs> uh, something tells me they were a heavy metal band. <laughs> I think so. I was. I, I never went. I was very concerned that I could. It actually may melt my face if I was involved in such a. Yeah, yeah they, such with a name like that. They likely were not a uh, folk pop. I'm guessing. <laughs> <laughs> Another funny uh, heavy metal story. Um, so a couple of buddies of mine in college. Also, there was a bar that used to play. They would have karaoke nights. And on one night of the week, they actually did heavy metal or death metal karaoke. Um, and they went in there. And when it was time for them to pick their song, they chose Simon and Garfunkel's Sound of Silence. Oh, my God. <laughs> Which with the crowd, it was a brilliant, brilliant move. Yeah, I'm sure that went over well. <laughs> um, just one last uh, heavy metal anecdote. About a month ago, we were walking by our local park, which is, uh, you know, hit or miss sometimes. But there was a band setting up and we were like, oh, this is great. And it was a heavy metal, like just like prog rock, screaming into the microphone, nobody playing instruments, like blaring at 8 p.m. <laughs> on a Tuesday night. And we're like, <laughs> our daughter is just staring around being like, what is this terror? Do they have a, a little tip hat set up? Are they playing for tips? <laughs> no, no they're, uh, they, they were way too legit for uh, 
money. They weren't corporate shills. All right. So this can, you know, concludes our discussion on heavy metal. <laughs> Have go. a good night, everybody. <laughs> um, all right. So back to anthrax. <laughs> That's why you're all here. <laughs> <laughs> Give the people what they want. Anthrax. That's right. That's what we do givers. Um, so back to anthrax, like I said. So uh, lucky for most humans, um, Dr. John, anthrax is a super rare disease. And today, <clears throat> human anthrax is most commonly seen in Africa and Central or Southern Asia. It also occurs more regularly in Southern Europe than anywhere else on the European continent and is uncommon in Northern Europe and North America. Today, we see about 2,000 cases a year globally. And maybe two cases pop up in the good old U.S. of A. Uh, anthrax, for those who don't know, is an infection caused by the bacterium Bacillus anthracis, a rod-shaped, gram-positive, facultative anaerobic bacterium. <gasps> it was originally demonstrated. <laughs> that cause. rod was a mouthful. <laughs> it was. <laughs> if I had a dollar for every time you said that. <laughs> can't do that math. Try to follow. Be positive. Um, that's right. Um, so it was originally demonstrated to cause the disease by Robert Koch in 1876 when he took a blood sample from an infected cow, isolated the bacteria, and put them into a mouse. Now, pre-PETA days, obviously, here. Um, but the sinister bacterium normally rests in a spore form in the soil and unfortunately for all of us humanoids, it can survive for decades in this state. Um, the spore is essentially the bacterial equivalent of a doomsday prepper's bomb shelter. Uh, scientists have discovered that approximately one-third of anthrax's entire genome is simply dedicated to spore formation, suggesting how important the spore is to the organism's life cycle. Um, so the spore basically allows the anthrax bacterium to survive conditions that would kill most other living things like, you know, watching Ben Affleck and reindeer games circa 2000. <laughs> You're proud yes. of that one. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody made a bet with me that I couldn't work in reindeer games into one of our podcasts. And I just took that one to the house. So. <laughs> uh -huh. yeah. the, the best uh, jokes are the ones that you have to point out. Love but, uh, I'm going to drink some brown water to that one. <laughs> So, like a golf ball, anthrax spores are made of many layers of material which protect the bacteria's DNA core. Um, the spore's tough outer coat is surrounded by a loose-fitting layer called the exosporium, and when the spore gets inside a human or animal host, sensing agents in the exosporium will signal the spore to hatch or germinate and start producing more bacteria. Proliferation. Life finds a way. <laughs> um... Herbivores are often infected while grazing, especially while eating rough or spiky vegetation, as the vegetation has been hypothesized to call small wounds or micro abrasions within the GI tract, permitting entry of the bacterial spore into the tissue. Um, once ingested or placed in an open wound, the spores germinate at the site of entry into the tissues and then spread by the or, sorry, and then are spread by the circulation to the lymphatics where the bacteria begins multiplying within the unsuspecting animal or human and typically kills the host within a few days or weeks. Um, it can occur in four different forms, skin, lungs, intestinal, and injection. Um, on average, symptoms uh, or symptom onset occurs between one day to over two months after the infection is contracted. 
So I think I'll, I'll take you, Dr. John, and our listeners on a little tour through the different types or the different forms of anthrax infection, if that's okay with you. Would you like me to continue? Ooh, it's like the magic school bus. I know. Let's open the door to room number one. <laughs> we'll call this room cutaneous anthrax or skin anthrax, also known as Hyde Potter's disease. Not Harry Potter's, but Hyde Potter's disease is when anthrax occurs on or inoculates the skin. It is the most common form, greater than 90% of anthrax cases, um, and luckily it is also the least dangerous form. It's got a low mortality rate with treatment, uh, about 23.7% to be exact. Cutaneous anthrax presents with a boil-like skin lesion that eventually forms an ulcer with a black center known as an eschar. Now, the black eschar often shows up as a large, painless, necrotic ulcer, sometimes beginning as an irritating and itchy skin lesion or blister at the site of infection, somewhat resembling bread mold. Delicious. Uh, And in general, cutaneous infections form within the site of the spore uh, penetration between two and five days after exposure. Unlike bruises or most other skin lesions, cutaneous anthrax infections normally do not cause pain. Uh, However, nearby lymph nodes may become infected, reddened, swollen, and become painful as a result. Eventually, a scab forms over the lesion. Within weeks, it falls off. Cutaneous anthrax is typically caused when B anthracis spores or anthrax spores uh, enter through cuts in the skin when humans handle infected animals or animal products. Poop. (laughs) So many of our diseases spread via poop. Got to wash your hands, man. Not scurvy, though. Scurvy, just in a league of its own. Good stuff. There's limes. <laughs> I've got a lemon tree in my backyard, by the way, just because of it. Again, like we talked about last week, it's not. they're not lemony bastards. They're limey bastards. But lemons were better. Uh-huh. And I think that's also why parents feed their kids orange slices in halftime of soccer games is because they want to avoid an acute scurvy outbreak in the middle of, on the pitch. Yeah, yeah. Sudden onset scurvy. That's the, what they uh, call the, the soccer field in Europe is the pitch. <laughs> the terror of the pitch that scurvy is. <laughs> um, all right, so back to anthrax. Sorry, anthrax. We're not giving you your due time. So for in, intestinal infection, door number two, the risk of death gets a little higher, 25 to 75%. And uh, gastrointestinal or GI infection is most often caused by consuming anthrax-infected meat. And it's characterized by diarrhea, potentially with blood. And that's obviously a sign of greatness in the bacterial world. So way to go. Um, Abdominal pains, acute inflammation of the intestinal tract, and loss of appetite. Occasionally vomiting or blood can occur. Even more street cred there. And lesions are often identified within the intestines and in the mouth and throat. After the bacterium invades the GI system, it spreads to the bloodstream and throughout the body while continuing to make its lovely toxins. Next is respiratory anthrax. I feel like this is the one that I always think of, mainly because of all the political shenanigans many moons ago. <laughs> <laughs> is it like a Saddam Hussein had uh, anthrax? Weren't they mailing them to politicians? I don't know if it's really uh, shenanigans, maybe isn't the right word. <laughs> Oh, yeah, no, I think more diabolical than shenanigans. (laughs) (laughs) Not harmless shenanigans. (laughs) Shenanigans sound so playful. Uh Suppose if you're mailing someone anthrax, (laughs) you're serious. Um, So respiratory anthrax has a mortality rate of about 50 to 80 percent, even with treatment. 
Uh, inhalation anthrax usually develops within a week after the exposure, but could take up to two months. Good things come to those who wait. Um, and the first few days of the illness is marked by fever, chills, and fatigue. And these symptoms may be accompanied by a cough, shortness of breath, chest pain, nausea and vomiting, uh, making inhalation anthrax difficult to distinguish from influenza, community-acquired pneumonia, and a, perhaps a COVID-19 at this time. Did you just go all Mario Brothers on that? <laughs> I did. What I'm really trying to do is create an anthrax scare. When a bunch of unvaccinated COVID-19 patients present, they say, I don't think it's COVID. I'm pretty sure it's anthrax. What did that have to do with Mario? I don't know. It just happened. It's a me, a COVID-19. <laughs> <laughs> Spontaneity is what really makes this podcast enjoyable to our <laughs> masses. <laughs> so uh, this is referred to as the prodromal period, basically the infection's premenstrual syndrome, I guess you could say. Um, over the next day nope. or so. Nope, you're not going to say not, that. I do not condone that analogy. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dr. John wrote that part of the episode, by the way. I'm just reading. Uh-huh. I'm the messenger. I'm the vessel, the vessel of knowledge. Yeah. As our listeners can clearly tell, I contribute very little to this podcast. You do all the writing. I know. I'm pretty sure you actually got up and walked away from the podcast monitor about five minutes ago. <laughs> My computer is about to die. <laughs> Respiratory anthrax infects the lymph nodes in the chest first, rather than the lungs themselves, resulting in a condition called hemorrhagic mediastinitis, resulting in bloody fluid Uh, resulting in bloody fluid accumulating in the thoracic cavity, which, surprise, causes significant shortness of breath. Um, The second pneumonia stage occurs when the infection spreads from the lymph nodes to the lungs, and symptoms of the second stage develop suddenly uh, within hours or days of the first stage. Symptoms include high fever, extreme shortness of breath, um, shock. Um, I guess shortness of air is the appropriate nomenclature at this point. So when you abbreviate it, it's SOA instead of SOB. That could be offensive if found in the patient's chart. Son of a bitch. (laughs) Give me a drink. Uh, But back to it caused shock. It caused rapid death within 48 hours uh, in fatal cases. Uh, And fun fact, veterinarians can often tell possible anthrax induced death by its sudden occurrence and by the dark non-clotting blood that subsequently oozes from the animal's orifices. Interestingly, most anthrax bacteria inside the body after death um, are actually outcompeted and destroyed by anaerobic bacteria within minutes to hours post-mortem now. However, anthrax vegetative bacteria that escape the body via the oozing blood um, uh, may form hardy spores that we also describe, and that's what perpetuates their life cycle. So fun fact, anthrax really can't be spread from person to person, with the exception of rare cases of skin exudates um, and cutaneous anthrax, and that's basically pus or serous fluid. Um, however, a person's clothing and body may be contaminated with anthrax spores, just an FYI. Um, effective decontin- or decontamination of people can be accomplished by a thorough washdown with antimicrobial soap and water. Uh, effective decontamination of clothing articles can be accomplished by boiling them in water for 30 minutes or longer. I like to add salt to my decontamination boils so the boiling point is higher. Um, can you just burn the clothes? Wouldn't that be easier? <laughs> but then what if some of the spores you know, get uh, lifted on yeah. the winds? So if you boil them, do you wear them later? 
I'd rather just go back to the mall and get some new digs. <laughs> Something gonna... sweet at Abercrombie and Fitch, or maybe uh, uh, what is it? Uh, <laughs> I was going to say Tropic Thunder, but what is the oh, <laughs> Spencer's? <laughs> What's that store? Hot Topic has nothing to do with Tropic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the Tropics are hot. I guess I was in the ballpark. <laughs> at least you can't accuse me of shopping there. <laughs> Except for date nights when I needed the outfit mm. really quick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Back to our story. Chlorine be- bleach is an ineffective. Uh, chlorine bleach is ineffective in destroying spores and vegetative cells on surfaces, but formaldehyde is effective. Uh, burning clothing is very effective in destroying spores. Here we go. However, less effective at preserving clothing, I guess. Yeah, makes sense. Uh-huh. I should have reread this before this episode, so I remember no. what we researched months ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, perhaps you should avoid wearing your Gucci loafers into the anthrax fields, Doctor John. I like. Uh, um, I like that you said chlorine beets. I would get some of those beets. I bet they're real fresh and clean. <laughs> the freshest. <laughs> After decontamination, uh, there is no need to immunize, treat, or isolate contacts of persons ill with anthrax unless they were also exposed to the same source of the infection. Now, for those infected, early antibiotic treatment of anthrax is essential um, because any delay significantly lessens the chances of survival, and that would be suboptimal. So treatment of four anthrax infections and other bacterial infections include large doses of IV and oral antibiotics, such as FDA-approved agents like ciprofloxacin, doxycycline, um, and penicillin. Uh, In possible cases of pulmonary anthrax, early antibiotic prophylaxis treatment is crucial to decrease the risk of death, which, as we said earlier, was much higher in that form. Now, many attempts have been made to develop new drugs against anthrax, but existing drugs are effective if the treatment is started soon enough. Uh, most recently, physicians began using uh, uh, Rex. Oh man, I hate these immune suppressant things that I can't pronounce. Rexabucamab. Rexumacamab. <laughs> they all end Mab. Mab. It's a Mab drug that starts yeah. with the Raxi. And there's a Baku in the middle of it. <laughs> Raxi Bakumam. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Brand name is Abthrax. We'll just go with that. Um, as indicated for emergency treatment of inhaled anthrax after it was approved by the US FDA on the 14th of December, 2012. Dude, that is such a good name. Abthrax. So instead of anthrax, you've got the abbreviation for antibody, and it's a monoclonal antibody. God, the marketing people were definitely using some white powder when they came up with that one. That's right. They were stoked. (laughs) AB Thrax is a monoclonal antibody that neutralizes toxins produced by B anthrax. And in March 2016, the FDA decided to double down and improve upon what it had done and improved a second anthrax treatment using monoclonal antibodies, which neutralizes the toxins produced by uh, B anthrax. Obilitaximab. Obilitaximab? I'm going with that. I actually feel pretty good about Obilitaximab, which was approved to treat inhalation anthrax in conjunction with appropriate antibacterial drugs and for prevention when alternative therapies were not available or appropriate. That generic name is amazing. It's got two X's in it and they're separated. 
You can o- tell how many monoclonal antibodies I'm prescribing in my practice. Obiltoxaximab. That is a bad A name. A bad <laughs> AB name. Abthrax. What up? So now, children, it's time for today's story. Death Island. Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> You'd rather go to Love Island. All right, next. All right. So this is the story of Grunard, a Scottish island that was poisoned by the British government. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> One of these stories. Oh, yes. God, people were so terrible to each other. I mean, people are still terrible. Well, I mean, Man, this is actually... I think this is one of the more unique and interesting tales that I've come across. I did, I did not know this place existed until uh, we researched this story. But so essentially in 1881, Grenard Island, uh, a two kilometer long island that had a population uh, at that time reported as six. So six people lived on this island in 1881. Um, two kilometers is like a mile and a quarter. This is amazing. It's a very tiny island. (laughs) As I was saying, in 1881, the two-kilometer-long island's population was reported as six. Um, Grenard has been uninhibited since the 1920s, and even today there are seldom any visitors to the isle, apart from perhaps the odd curious kayaker or a fisherman collecting a stranded buoy and likely wearing a cable-knit sweater. Why? (laughs) You know what's a great cable net sweater? Have you seen uh, Knives Out? Yes, I have. Yeah, uh, what's uh, Chris Evans, the white cable net sweater he wears <laughs> from that? Great, great. Very true. Um, so, Grenard has effectively been a no-go zone for almost 80 years. Um, you see, the British were busy developing and testing the utility of anthrax as a biological weapon in World War II. Um, so in 1942, a highly virulent strain of anthrax known as Volum. 14578, named after R.L. Volum, the professor of bacteriology at the University of Oxford who supplied it, was being tested for biological warfare. The British military scientists filled bombs with the deadly bacteria, and once detonated, the bombs would burst and rain down a cloud of brown, deadly bacterial dust. Um, It was on the quiet shores of the Grenard Island that the military tested their effect. So essentially what they did, they took 60 sheep in total, and they were placed on the island ahead of the initial experiment. Some were placed in open pens, while others were positioned in exposure crates, or we could call them cages. Um, (laughs) What do you you think the sheep were telling each other uh, right before this happened? (laughs) Do Do you think one of them said, I got a bad feeling about this? Um. When the bomb was to be or was detonated, the anthrax spores drifted down onto the flock of unsuspecting sheep, or perhaps there was one suspecting sheep, as Dr. John alluded. And uh, the intent was to determine how harmful the highly infectious disease could be in a warfare situation. The answer? Very. <laughs> it was very effective. Um, all six of the exposed sheep perished from inhalation anthrax. Uh, this pattern was frequently repeated over the course of about two years, and the trials determined that large numbers of anthrax spores could be effectively dispersed in aerosolized clouds, remaining both viable and virulent. Um, I mean, one time would have likely been enough, I guess, to get that point across, but they really wanted to 
hit that nail home. Um, a summary report at the end of the experiments concluded that similar anthrax weapons could so thoroughly contaminate German cities that they would be made inhospitable for generations of humans. Some of the experiments were recorded on a 16 millimeter color movie film, which was declassified in 1997. Uh, and in one sequence, uh, they described showing the detonation of an anthrax bomb filled uh, or fixed at the end of a tall pole supported with guy ropes. Um, and after the bomb explodes, a brownish aerosol cloud drifts away towards the target animals. A later sequence shows anthrax infected sheep carcasses being burned in incinerators at the end of the experiment. <laughs> I, I love uh, that you're describing video to us on this uh, audio uh, medium. <laughs> but like, what, what happened in the interim there? The sheep live quiet, happy lives. <laughs> no, but, they got uh, put so... in incinerators and burned because they were all dead carcasses. <laughs> but that was and... you know, a- after they lived you know, 20 nice years and had lots of children and... Yeah, probably not. I think some of them were just, <laughs> I'm pretty sure this was a terrible thing. <laughs> yeah. Those poor sheep. So with uh, World War II coming to an end, the Grenard tests were abandoned. And in 1945, when the island's owners sought its return, not sure I'd want it back, the Ministry of Supply recognized that the island was contaminated. <laughs> so it could not be derequisitioned until it was deemed safe. Excuses, excuses. Anyway, in 1946, the government agreed to acquire the island and to take responsibility for it. And the owner uh, or her heirs would be able to repurchase the island for only 500 pounds when it was declared fit for habitation by man or beast. (laughs) So at the conclusion of the trials, an estimated 4 by 10 by 14 spores had been... (laughs) Why did I write it like that? I could have just said like... (laughs) A, a Google, a gajillion. Yeah, a jillion spores had been detonated at the island, and Grenard was so thoroughly drenched in anthrax that it was judged to be too hazardous and expensive to decontaminate um, the island sufficiently to allow public access. And uh, Grenard Island was quarantined indefinitely at the time, so visits to the island were prohibited except for periodic checks by uh, Porton Down personnel to determine the level of contamination. And for 20 years, inspections of animals exposed to Grenard revealed the continuing virulence of the spores left behind. Signs were placed around the shore warning of the no-go zone, but virtually no work was done on cleaning up the test site. Now, unfortunately for the locals on the mainland, the legacy of the test would be reinforced when deceased sheep infected with Grenard anthrax would wash up on their shores. Every now and then, little presents from mankind's bad deeds. Um, Locals say that a dog was spotted eating the carcass, uh, with the dog subsequently becoming violently ill. Um, And after that, several farm and domestic animals died rapidly and mysteriously. Local farmers were Uh, rapidly paid compensation by the authorities. Um, Nothing to see here. And at that time, those living in the area were uh, then still largely unaware of the nature of the government's work on Grenard. Uh, One such local told the BBC in 1962 that the government paid up without a quibble, without a quibble, without a quibble. (laughs) (laughs) We knew there was something going on or they wouldn't have paid us quite as quick as they did, said another farmer, who lost a horse and six sheep. Oh, poor bastard. There's a lot of dead animals in this episode. Yeah. 
that rubs me wrong. I do not like that. But uh, sampling was discontinued until 1979 when the responsibility of Grenard was given to the Chemical Defenses Establishment at Portendown. And in 1981, the island again became a public threat when a group calling themselves Operation Dark Harvest began writing threatening messages towards the British government and the papers demanding that the government decontaminate the island and reported that a team of microbiologists from two universities had landed on the island incognito with the aid of the local people and collected 300 pounds, 140 kilograms of soil in total. Um, And the group threatened to leave samples of the soil at appropriate points that would ensure the rapid loss of indifference of the government and the equally rapid education of the general public to the government's past misdeeds. Um, On the same day as these um, ominous warnings in the paper, a sealed package of soil was left outside the military research facility at Portendown. Um, Testing revealed that it did in fact contain anthrax bacilli. And a few days later, another sealed package of soil was left in Blackpool, where the ruling Conservative Party was holding its annual conference. Uh, The soil did not contain anthrax, but officials said the soil was similar to uh, the soil that is found on the island and was left at Porton Down, so maybe just lucky. Uh, the terroristic approach ultimately worked, and in 1986, the government began a decontamination project by spraying down the entire island with 280 tons of formaldehyde. Better than bleach. That, that's um, got to be good for the environment. Also, yeah. uh, side note, Operation Dark Harvest is a pretty sick name. It's a dope name. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, shout out to uh, all of the uh, the linguistic experts. Uh, the environmental but, uh, warriors in the... <laughs> yeah. We had uh, AB Thrax and Operation Dark Harvest. Yes. Um, so yeah, so the, basically with the decontamination project, 280 tons of formaldehyde, and they may have diluted it a bit in some seawater solution. Um, after the decontamination, sheep were ferried daily from the mainland to graze on the island. So apparently we're still just shitting on the sheep here. (laughs) But anyway, uh, once they grazed for a year, it was determined that the island was safe. And in 1990, the island was officially declared safe when the government sought to bring Grenard's dark chapter to a close by sending a junior defense minister uh, by the name of Michael Newbert to pose for cameras removing the warning signs from the shore. As humorously noted by journalist Rebecca Creston, the government may have been hedging their bets by delegating a junior staff member as the face of this chancy mission. <laughs> Just in case. (laughs) Trust me, it's totally safe. (laughs) We'll be standing on the mainland. (laughs) Would we be taking photos of you doing this if it wasn't safe? Set up this camera and put the timer on it to take your own photo while you're removing the sign. We would totally join you, but we're busy that day. (laughs) So, however, uh, not everyone is convinced the island was now safe. uh, For in the words of an educated skeptic, it is very... (laughs) Uh, anthrax is a very resilient and deadly bacterium. Uh, shortly after the island was repurchased by the heir of the original owner, reportedly at the lawyer, uh, reportedly a lawyer's wife from Edinburgh uh, for the original promised sale price of 500 pounds. And in 1997, the history of the project was declassified, as we said before, for the first time. So Grenard Island, it's quite yeah, the history. Is that where, uh, is that where that, like Trump national golf courses? 
<laughs> he got it for a steal. A small golf course. I, <laughs> I don't know why these sheep keep dying on my golf course. <laughs> Um, let's see. So lastly, here's a quick military history of anthrax, the weapon for our military buffs. Um, the first mass use of anthrax spores as a weapon is said to have taken place during the Japanese occupation of China, uh, from 1932 to 1945. Uh, the Japanese actually allegedly experimented with the use of anthrax and other biological weapons in Manchuria. Um, some 10,000 deliberately infected prisoners are thought to have died as a result. In the Second World War, while Germans did not launch uh, the much-feared biologic attack, um, they, they, as well as the Allied forces, experimented with the possibilities of using anthrax or other agents, as discussed, a.k.a. Grenard Island. And after the Second World War, the U.S. continued its biological weapon research into the 1950s when Iowa State University produced the virulent Amy's strain of anthrax, which was later sold to many parts of the world. Ah, capitalism. <laughs> I missed you. <laughs> Here's some deadly virus. Who wants uh -huh. to buy it? Um, in 1970, President Nixon ordered an end to the production of biological weapons in the United States. Maybe that really happened. Maybe not. Uh, since then, associated research has been confined to developing means of defense against any biological attacks. Now, in 1972, international concern led to a treaty banning the production and stockpiling of biological weapons. This was eventually signed by about 140 nations. Although it was one of the treaty signatures, uh, signatories, the Soviet Union continued researching and producing biological weapons. And unfortunately, in April of 1979, the accidental release of anthrax spores from a military facility near Sverdlovsk, a city of, again, a lot of consonants, Nailed city of it. about 1.2 million people, um, about 1,400 kilometers east of Moscow, caused 68 known deaths. Um, information from the Kremlin was not immediately forthcoming. Uh, and late in 1991, then-Russian President Boris Yeltsin, uh, who in 1979 was the chief Communist Party official uh, of the Sverdlovsk region, directed his uh, counselor for ecology and health to determine the origin of this pandemic or epidemic. Uh, and in May 1992, Yeltsin was quoted as saying that the KGB um, admitted that our military developments were the cause uh, and no further information was provided. Then, moving ahead to the Gulf War in 1991 uh, and subsequently Operation Desert Storm, both of which were associated with a significant paranoia regarding the use of chemical uh, weapons, especially anthrax. You see, Iraq had previously purchased anthrax spores from the United States back in the 80s. We sold them the uh, biological weapons and was thought to be developing the capability to use them in warheads and in aerial attacks. Now, biological weapons were confirmed following the original Gulf War, including anthrax, botulinum, aflatoxin, all of which had proceeded to weaponization for, or for deployment. Fortunately, Saddam Hussein did not use the stockpile and it was assumed he reasoned that his army was defeated and deployment would have resulted in a massive retaliation. 
Others perceived them as weapons of a last resort to only be used if coalition forces stormed the gates of Baghdad, which never happened in the initial Gulf War. Uh, the Iraqis claimed to have destroyed their chemical weapons and stockpiles following the Gulf War, but no confirma uh, confirmatory evidence was ever provided. The possibility of biological weapons and the non-cooperation with UN um, ESCOM inspectors was cited as one of the major justifications by President George W. Bush for the military invasion of Iraq. WMDs, baby. Anyway, uh, in 2005, an Iraq survey group of international group composed of civilian and military experts concluded that the Iraqi military biological weapons program had been abandoned during 1995 and 1996 because of fear the discovery of continued activity would re result in severe political repercussions, including the extension of the UN sanctions. Uh, however, they concluded Hussein had perpetuated uh, the ambiguity uh, regarding a possible program as a strategic deterrent against iran the end well that's a that's a note to end it on anthrax rocks <laughs> well um <laughs> well, dr guy as always thanks for walking us through another amazing fascinating disease process i feel like this uh, one was a this one was a, a keeper for sure but uh as dr john said thank you guys for tuning in to another delightful episode of disease death and doctors um, we hope you enjoyed your time with us today. Yeah. We hope we've smashed, educated you. Smash that subscribe button. Subscribe, my friends. Leave a uh, five-star, four-star. What's the highest rating you can leave? I mean, don't waste your time if you're not going to do it right. But we'll, we'll take whatever we can get. Four or five is fine with me. Just leave us all the stars. <laughs> and tell a friend <laughs> to listen to us. Luigi. <laughs> uh, cheers, guys. Stay safe out there. And we'll uh, see you in a couple weeks. Cheers. cheers.